millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Germany in Focus, a news podcast made possible by members of The Local. Today we're talking about why Germany's love affair with the fax machine may be coming to an end. We're getting into why a German government conference on Islam has been so controversial. After the dual citizenship law was put on pause, we're giving you the latest update and how it's changing. The German government is freaking out about billions of missing euros from the budget after a court ruling involving the debt break. We'll tell you how it could affect you. A new survey ranks Hamburg and Berlin as two of the worst cities for foreigners. Are they really that bad? And finally, we'll discuss some food culture shocks that the local Germany readers have had and we'll share some of ours. I'm Rachel Loxon and I'm in Berlin today with journalists Imogen Goodman and James Jackson. Hello. Hello. Hi there. How's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. Great, thanks. So welcome, James, to our little podcast booth. This is the first time you're joining us. You have actually been on an episode before about the German school system, but your first time in our booth. Can you share a bit about yourself? Yes. So local readers might have seen me popping up more and more on the website. Um, I've written some op-eds there before, and now I'm doing some news and explainers alongside the, the rest of the local team. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Some might, people might say too active. Uh, <laughs> I'm a journalist covering German news, as well as investigations, some, some business and climate stories from Germany and then uh, Eastern Europe and recently Finland. Actually, last night I had my debut on stage. I was at Babylon in Berlin next to the Volksbühne talking about how the Finns are using the heat from sewage and the internet to keep warm. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just <laughs> snuck that in there at the end. Yeah. Like, now I'm on stage two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stage two. Great. And are you well, Imogen, this week? I'm very well. I haven't been uh, thrilling audiences on the stages of Berlin, but I've been having a nice time and I'm, yeah, enjoying the autumn yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah that's, that's going lovely. well. Yeah, but like actually, I might need uh, some sewage uh, to keep me warm, possibly this winter. <laughs> um, it is getting very, very cold, and I've still got this kind of hangover from 2022 when we're all terrified to put our heating on. So I think any tips you can give me, James, that would be great. Oh my goodness, I remember that. I should say to our listeners that the other Rachel, Rachel Stern, is off on holiday for a few weeks. And Sarah McGill, who used to join us sometimes, has got some other commitments, so isn't doing so much for the local right now. But I'm sure we'll have her back in the future. And our regular panelist, Aaron, couldn't make it this week, but he'll be back soon. So it's very nice to have a new face here. Okay, let's start off with some cutting edge tech news. This is a fantastic story. We learned last week that the German parliament is phasing out the fax machine. From June 30th next year, at the latest, apparently, all fax machines will be gone from the offices of the Bundestag after a decision was passed. Imogen, can you tell us 
what is this all about? Why did they need a resolution to get rid of the facts? Yeah, well, I think the response of most people to this story when they heard it was, wait, they still have fax machines in the Bundestag. Yes. <laughs> um, apparently they do. Europe's largest economy has hundreds of fax machines uh, in the seat of power. And you kind of get the impression that if it w- weren't for this new resolution, they'd be more than happy to keep them well into the 2030s. So yes, as you say, this was a resolution from the Budget Committee uh, where they said, look, by middle of next year, we really have to phase these out. And the background to all of this is that the government has been been working really, really hard to try and sort of digitalise, move into the 21st century. And they're very hopeful that these efforts have paid off enough that by the middle of 2024, they will be able to do without the humble fax machine. I personally think that's a bit of a low bar. But if you know how much Germans just adore this piece of equipment, you might kind of understand what a major step this is. Another aspect of this that's worth mentioning is that it does seem that politicians were getting just a little bit embarrassed about having these machines there, these kind of relics of the 1990s. One FDP or Free Democrats uh, MP, Torsten Herbs, actually said that when visitors uh, arrived at the Bundestag, they always reacted with astonishment oh, at really? seeing these. So I think probably they were they were starting to find it a little bit humiliating. And so that might have also sort of spurred on this action that they've taken. Yeah, Imogen, I believe you actually have been researching the history of the fax machine in Germany as well. What can you tell us? I have. I've been delving into this very key part of German life. Um, And one interesting thing that actually uh, came across when I was researching for an article was that Germany was quite a late adopter of the fax machine, if you can believe that. Germany a late adopter? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the fax uh, was actually invented way back in the 1960s, um, but it only really came to Germany in the 1980s. And then it really sort of took hold and and became super widespread in the 1990s. So in a way, I feel this adds some important context to the fact that Germans may actually see this as a new piece of technology, which might be why it's so hard to get rid of. But you really see this kind of clash of worlds of of technology moving on, science moving on, and and this insistence on keeping uh, the fax machine when you look at what happened during the pandemic. And so often the kind of perception, uh, which I think was true, was that the pandemic forced Germany to sort of update its digital processes, have working from home. But at the same time, these high tech testing labs, these hospitals were faxing all these patient figures Mm. and and infection numbers over to the central authorities. One particularly funny anecdote I actually came across was a political party in Hamburg who wanted to take part in the Bundestagswahl. And so they applied to uh, participate back in 2021 and the application got rejected. Uh, So this was the 2021 federal elections. And they basically were in this situation where they had just a couple of days to appeal the decision in writing so they couldn't send their appeal by snail mail. And they ended up having to find some little copy shop in Hamburg where they could fax their documents to the Federal Court of Justice. So I've got this mental image of these party leaders kind of huddled at the back of some spatie on the Reeperbahn, like faxing over these legal documents uh, to the Court of Justice. And I just think that just perfectly sums up how far the German love of fax goes. It really, (laughs) it really does. I I can picture it as well. Guys, have you had any run-ins with the facts since you've been living here? 
So once when I was working at a well-known German international broadcaster, I had to get my contract uh, or some of my account details faxed from Berlin to Bonn because this was apparently the most secure way to do it. But I have also heard, it might be an urban legend, but really the best way to get appointments at German Behörde at the bureaucratic offices is to fax because people are all trying to do it online. We've had these experiences. The online booking system just doesn't work. So maybe fax is a bit of a shortcut there. It's funny that you mention that because I have heard the exact same thing. This is apparently a hack. If you're being ghosted by the Ausländer Behörde or any other sort of public authority. And the reason behind it is supposedly uh, because there are legal obligations for them to reply to you, but fax is just more traceable. So they get a bit scared if they see a fax come through. They think, oh God, the clock is ticking. But my tip would be in this scenario uh, to just get a fax app on your smartphone and beat the Germans at their own game. They'll think that you've complied with their lack of digitalization, but secretly you're just there on your on your. I didn't know that could happen. I thought you were going to say my tip is get a fax machine. Get one out of the Bundestag. To be fair, I have to say I am very attached to my home printer. That is something that has become you indispensable. I did look for a, a printer fax, but unfortunately <laughs> that was out of my budget range at the time. But Christmas, They're all sold out. They're so popular. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like the rush to get fans in summer. Fax machines perpetually <laughs> sold out in Germany. Yep. Thank you both so much for those updates. Moving on to what else is in the news. Germany's Interior Ministry has been holding its annual Islam conference, but it sparked controversy because, as many people have been pointing out on social media, barely any Islamic groups were represented or involved in the two-day event. James, what is the Islam conference and why is it being talked about so much? So the Islam conference is an annual meeting that's been going back since 2006 when it was set up by then Interior Minister Wolfgang Schäuble. And so it's supposed to be a dialogue between German civil society and representatives of various Muslim communities talking about integration and other issues. For example, at the moment, one of the main topics was anti-Semitism and how people have reacted and should react to the Hamas attack on Israel of 7th of October. And why is there controversy around it? So this time, a lot of people pointed out the absurdity of having an Islam conference where there's very, very little representation of Muslims at all. In fact, as community representatives, it was just one very small one called, which represents only 120 mosques out of two and a half thousand in Germany. And then, of course, one of the other few German Muslims there was Ahmad Mansour, who is a prominent commentator, but quite a controversial figure within Germany's Muslim community because he's written some quite popular psychology books about how the whole generation of young German Muslims are a threat that he calls Generation Allah. He gets a lot of money from the Bavarian um, state to go into prisons and tell young Muslims that they shouldn't be radicals and and things like that. So he's very controversial. He's been called an activist with a business model by an FZ journalist. I think he's quite key a figure if you look at how Germany has toughened towards Muslims in the recent years. Of course, I think it was quite tough 20 years ago. And and in recent years, it's become, it's kind of circled back to that approach. Yeah. And we're really seeing a kind of uptick of this since the attacks on October 7th, right? We absolutely are. I think one thing that was very controversial in Germany is as these 
attacks happened. A few people, it was, I think, about 40 people associated with the Palestinian network, Samidun, went out and celebrated those attacks on the streets of Noikun, of Sonan Ali, which is very much a very Palestinian street. So that was pretty gross behavior, really. But I think it is worth pointing out that 40 people out of a huge community in Berlin is very much a tiny minority and uh, many of them will be prosecuted. And I don't think it's really fair for them to be seen as representing the community when it is such a, a wide and also diverse community in Germany. Uh, so we have German Turkish Muslims, we have Sunnis, Shia, and it's a big it's a big mix. And you'd, you'd sort of expect for people to be, be those people to all be represented at an Islam conference. So it kind of you get the impression it's more of a conference to talk about Muslims rather than a dialogue at the moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out to me, and I think this was picked up on, on on social media, was that Nancy Faser gave this speech, and she spent she spent about ten minutes, sort of yeah, with very broad brushstrokes, painting this idea that anti-Semitism, that this kind of toxic, xenophobic or kind of dehumanizing culture and language was exclusively the problem of of these five point five million Muslims in the country, and then at the end, a sort of an aside said, oh, but the people who are painting anti-Semitism as a Muslim problem are only trying to divide us and we shouldn't we shouldn't listen to it. And I just thought, wow, you know, can you hear yourself? There is something of, of well, they say it's an imported problem and, yeah. and they're kind of blaming these migrant communities. But actually, I feel that what's happening is that they are trying to export the problem. They're trying to say, wash their hands of it and say nothing to see here, nothing on our end. And they're doing a lot of sort of lecturing, a lot of finger wagging, which I, I think will only Stoke division actually and would I imagine lead to a lot of hurt in these kind of in these millions of uh, you know among these millions of people who, who live here and have made their lives here. Well, I think this is one of the issues, isn't it? Because there are so many different people from Muslim backgrounds in Germany, and they've been asked to distance themselves from Hamas by the president, all Arabs, including uh, yeah, President Frank Walter Steinmeier asked all Arabs, including German Arabs, to distance themselves. Of course, he didn't. She seems to have forgotten that actually you have a lot of Christian Arabs as well, right? So can you imagine that? You're a sort of Lebanese Christian and you're being asked to distance yourself from Hamas. It's just mm. it's very broad brushstrokes, as you say. And then there was Harbeck's speech a few weeks ago, that the economics minister and vice-chancellor, Robert Harbeck, who's from the Greens. He's possibly their next chancellor candidate. And some people think this speech where he you know, talked about anti-Semitism was his pitch to, fit, to be the next chancellor candidate for the Greens and show that Olaf Scholz is kind of, uh, the chancellor Olaf Scholz is missing in action a little bit. And he got a lot of applause. But I, I find it hard to imagine in the US or the UK or perhaps Spain, a senior political figure asking Muslims, all Muslims, to distance themselves from Hamas. Because it's, you know, Hamas are just a terrible terrorist organization that most Muslims don't support yeah. at all. So why should they have to, really? Yeah. Yeah. And also ignoring the problem of anti-Semitism within the far right, which we know is the cause of most offences in Germany. So what's the reaction been to all of this? Yeah, I think um, we're seeing a bit of a divide in the reaction. I think this is one case where the German media are not particularly not doing their job particularly well. And you're noticing that within politics and the media, there's not much representation from Muslims. Yeah. And despite there being so many in Germany and such a kind of diverse and in, in many cases, very well educated community, they don't seem to have many Muslims in the media. So a lot of these discussions seem to be happening on social media or on kind of Muslim-focused websites. Uh, so I'm not sure if what Hans Meyer, who only reads the FRZ, is if he's actually picking up on this debate. 
And what is the German government saying to all of this? So the German government, I think what's different this year is that they uninvited the central, the Zentralrat der Muslimen, which is the Central Council of Muslims in Germany, which is sort of a big umbrella body. Germany uninvited them or their interior ministry did because they said they didn't clearly enough condemn anti-Semitism and Hamas's attack. But I think one thing that went under the radar is that the interior ministry did work with a group of 11 Muslim organizations, including DITIB, which is quite a big one associated with Turkey and the Turkish state to sign a statement condemning anti-Semitism and Hamas, which the Central Rat, the Central Council, didn't sign up to. But then why did only one of these organizations get invited alongside Ahmad Mansour? Couldn't they have invited the others who then did condemn anti-Semitism and Hamas's attack? And I actually read um, an interview that the head of the Central Rat, so the Central Council of Muslims, uh, gave. And he quite clearly said that it was about condemning Hamas, that that was something that they did. He simply said that on the other side, you know, not calling for a ceasefire, allowing this bombardment to continue in Gaza would, in his view, lead to more radicalization and more terrorism. I think it's also worth mentioning that that Islamophobia was uh, originally meant to be the central focus of this conference. And this is at a time when we've seen uh, at least 40 attacks on mosques in the past six weeks alone, um, people sending feces, people sending pork to sort of religious centres. So at a time when this clearly is a problem, the fact that this isn't really being talking about, the, the fact that there's been a kind of controversy about whether that should even be on the agenda, I, I think that really does sort of speak to the sidelining of those voices. And I do think it, it's quite a shame that that this, um, at such an important time for sort of engagement and, 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 and discussion, that, that this important group of, of, of sort of German society has been pushed to one side. Thank you both for that. And we'll also include an explainer about this topic in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we carry on with our discussion, I'd like to ask that you consider supporting our podcast by becoming a member of The Local. We are an independent media outlet and your support is what allows us to produce all the news and all the cultural and practical explainer articles that we write and it allows us to do this podcast. If you'd like to join, you can find a link to a special offer for podcast listeners in the show notes or you can access it directly at thelocal.de slash podcast offer. Germany's landmark citizenship reform hit a hurdle recently after it was taken off the parliamentary agenda for its first reading. 
That was due to a debate about whether the law was tough enough around anti-Semitism. And, well, we found out this week that the law is back on the Bundestag agenda and we have been digging into how it might be changing. Imogen, when is this law going to be talked about in the Bundestag? So it has been a bit of a nail-biting few weeks, I think, for everyone who's been waiting for this law to pass and sort of eagerly uh, awaiting this debate in the Bundestag. So we were originally uh, expecting the first reading on November 9th. That was taken off the agenda, like you say, amid all these debates about anti-Semitism. So the FDP, who were in the governing coalition, basically said they wanted to tighten up the rules to make it impossible for people with anti-Semitic views in particular Um, to become naturalised. Luckily, it does seem like progress has been made here. So the coalition has now put this back on the agenda for December 1st. So at the end of next week, and that should hopefully mean that things start moving again with this bill and gets back on schedule. Good to know. What has changed about the draft law? Well, nothing has concretely changed just yet, but we've looked at the latest version uh, that's been published on the Bundestag website, and it does seem like a few changes are kind of being considered here. Uh, So like you say, this really all comes down to this debate about anti-Semitism, which the government and lots of commentators in the German media seem to be categorising as a a sort of imported problem. So it's clear this is something that the government wants to look at, and so far the changes seem to be a about expanding the powers the authorities have to investigate people they think may hold dehumanising, racist or anti-Semitic views. Uh, So one interesting potential change on that front would be that caseworkers would have perhaps new powers or a new incentive to investigate people who perhaps during this Erstgespräch, this initial consultation or during interviews, seem to sort of indicate that they might hold these views. And one thing they could potentially do in these cases is is they could look into any offences committed by these kind of applicants in the past and ask public prosecutors to give them a report on whether there were potential anti-Semitic or racist motives in any offences they've committed in the past. So as I say, this is all something that is all under discussion. We won't actually see amendments till after this first reading, probably on December 1st. But it does seem they are looking at some of these new avenues, perhaps kind of expanding some of these powers to really investigate people who they think may hold these kinds of attitudes. Okay, so still a few things unclear at the moment. Imogen, can you remind us what happens next? When are we actually going to see this law in force? Yeah, so the big worry uh, with this delay is that it would set back the schedule yet again. We have been waiting a very, very long time for this law. It's been two years since it it was announced, so we really don't want to see more setbacks. And luckily, our sources from the Green Party are telling us that it is still on track to come into force in April next year. Before then, uh, there's still a bit of a way to go. As I mentioned, after the first reading, there are likely to be some amendments made. Then that will go to a second reading in the House and finally to a third reading where there will be a vote. So we fully expect this to pass the vote. There shouldn't be any problem there. This is a coalition project and they have the majority in the Bundestag. Then... Since it's already been discussed in the upper house, it does not have to go through the Bundesrat, which is a very, very Mm -hmm. good thing. So no more hurdles to clear there. So to sum up, we think the bill will get its final reading and vote sometime in January. And then there'll likely be a three month implementation phase to allow the authorities to kind of get their ducks in a row, get everything sorted. 
And then the bill will finally be there in place, hopefully in April 2024. Okay, good to know. Thanks, Imogen. Okay, moving on. Let's be honest. The German government is not having the best time right now. And here's another thing that is probably disturbing MPs' sleep at the moment. And that is the constitutional court ruling from last week involving the debt break. These are probably the two most German things we've (laughs) ever talked about, at least, and the fax machine, let's be honest. (laughs) James, can you tell us, first of all, what is the debt break? So for some background, basically, Angela Merkel's government with the FDP passed this constitutional amendment in 2011, saying that the government is not allowed to borrow more than a small percentage of its GDP uh, per year. That's 0.35%. And for a long time, when Germany had low interest rates, cheap Russian gas and a very healthy export-led economy, this didn't really create big issues. The German government was in a surplus, unlike many other governments around Europe at the time. But those days are well and truly gone. And in the corona pandemic, the government needed to borrow huge sums of money for Kurzarbeit, which was, you know, paying people's salaries while they were out of work, as well as vaccines and other bailout costs. And so they passed an emergency law to do that. And when the pandemic ended, there was still some of this money left, 60 billion euros of it. And the Traffic Light Coalition thought, well, why don't we spend this money on the green transition? Then it won't count as the actual budget. We won't be going against the debt break law. We can invest in some new chip factories, get some new jobs in Magdeburg and Dresden, subsidize the power-hungry heavy industry that's going to be now having its bills going through the roof with the higher energy prices, and also subsidize buying electric cars. But the court in Karlsruhe, constitutional court, found this to be unconstitutional and illegal and ruled these investments to be illegal and questioned many things about the government. And and this was one of their big plans for the future. So I think this is a worrying time to be in the finance ministry. Mm -hmm. So they're missing 60 billion euros from the budget, possibly more even? Well, here's the thing. With this ruling, it's questioned the entire it's questioned also the subsidization of energy bills, which was around the same amount, even slightly more, and the whole budget in general. And in fact, we just saw earlier today as we were coming into the studio that they have now postponed the the committee responsible for it has postponed the budget for 2024. So it sounds like there's a lot of arguing going on behind the scenes of what they're going to do. Yeah. um, And we're recording this on November 22nd, by the way, and we'll include uh, some updates in the show notes on this story. But what what do we think that they're going to do, James? Do we have any idea? Um, I don't think anyone knows yet, and it's going to be really hotly debated. So the Energy and Climate Minister, Robert Harbeck, uh, as well as some SPD senior SPD figures from the Social Democrats, think it's time to reform the debt break. This is a law from another time. Maybe it was a bit silly to put it in the Constitution rather than just have it as a rule of thumb. Uh, but it's very unlikely that the Finance Minister, Christian Lindner, who has described himself as a, a friendly hawk on the budget, um, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he... He's very unlikely to be willing to do that. You know, fiscal conservatism is part of what makes his party attractive to their voters, although it doesn't seem like they've got many voters left looking at the polls. But he's actually on the side of public opinion with uh, 
a civis survey for Der Spiegel finding that 65% of Germans want to keep the debt break. So it's actually, if you can't uh, borrow and Lindner's not going to want to raise any taxes, so what can they do? <laughs> it's a good question. I think there's possibly going to be cuts to welfare. The CDU Christian Democrat leader, Friedrich Merz, was saying, you know, if we if we cut childcare and we cut unemployment benefit, then we can get 10 billion great. Well, there's 50 billion more to go, Friedrich. So um, yeah. I think we need to, we're in a bit of a crisis It really right could now. affect people's everyday lives then, possibly. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think especially if you were, for example, buying an electric car or you were planning on getting a job that was being backed here. And then if they make the cut, and that's definitely going to be affected. Lots of companies were promised uh, government funding, but aren't going to get it anymore unless they can find 60 billion lying around. So yeah, I think it's something that's that's going to affect a lot of people. And if, if that then leads to cuts from the budget and cancel plans, it will affect ev- even more people. So I wrote a little explainer on that in the morning. Germany doesn't like debt, obviously. They have a debt break. Why is this so important for Germany? So I think it's worth remembering that in German, the word for debt is schuld. And that is the same as the word for guilt or or sin. Mm. So it's almost uh, something quite deeply ingrained in German thought, this idea that you shouldn't borrow. And I think you can see how that works across a number of issues, including in how people are buying. There isn't really a word for mortgage in this country because people don't buy houses to the same extent as they do across Europe. The same is true in Austria and Switzerland, mostly German-speaking countries. So while the rest of the Western world had a bit of a love affair with austerity and fiscal conservatism in the 2010s, cutting government budgets, most of them have kind of woken up from that and realized, okay, it's actually a good idea that we invest in the future and sometimes you have to spend money to make money and all that. Uh, but Germany, they didn't have the same lessons. They didn't also didn't cut as hard, but they didn't have to borrow as much. So arguably, the roots are going deeper. In Germany, there's this famous phrase, you have to be sparsam wie eine schwäbische Hausfrau, which means be as thrifty as a Swabian housewife. Swabians are known to be tight, as we would say. Yeah, and so. they're, they're also often compared to Scottish people, because apparently Scottish people are tight, but I swear to God, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I would buy anyone a drink. Good. Hold me to it. Good to know. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for that, James. Okay, wow. We are really getting through a lot of topics today, but let's stick with it. Let's move on to our next one. A recent survey of internationals abroad by Internations found that the German cities of Hamburg and Berlin were some of the worst for foreigners to live in. Hamburg came in at 46th out of 49 cities in the global ranking, and Berlin was 45th. Imogen, why are these cities so bad, according to the international residents surveyed? Yeah, poor Berlin and Hamburg. They really did very, very badly. They got actually completely hammered in this ranking on a lot of different fronts. And I think one of the least surprising probably was the worsening housing crisis. So this is something that is affecting both cities. I think it's affecting pretty much all cities in Germany, actually. So people reported that they had really struggled to find housing when moving to either Hamburg or Berlin. Uh, In Berlin, in fact, 78% of the residents who filled in the survey said that they found it really, really difficult to find somewhere to live. I read this and I thought, well, 
22% of people didn't find it hard. That's very surprising. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But obviously, uh, you know, if you're you're worrying about these day-to-day things, that is going to have an effect on your life. But it wasn't just housing. Another real aspect that came up was the social life that people felt they could have in both of these cities. So as well as things like the sad state of digital services, paying by card, a lot of people really said that they'd found it hard to make local friends and build a good support network. So in Hamburg, around a third of participants said they didn't have access to any sort of support network and 41% said they were unhappy with their social lives. In Berlin, things were a bit more personal about the Berliners. So it was the gruff locals that were the turnoff here. Um, Homegrown Berliners actually were ranked the second least friendly in the whole of the study. Uh, Do we not look in last? We do not. That is (laughs) worth looking up because it's who? Who? Who is least who yeah, is less friendly who's than the Berliners? I I have no idea. Maybe maybe the hamburgers? I don't think so. <laughs> it can't be. Um I probably also don't need to mention that the weather was a bit of a downer, um, especially in Hamburg where cold and wet seems to define pretty much every season there is. It doesn't really change. Uh, so that was obviously something that people complained about as well. Do you think that this is just the general vibe at the moment? Is everyone unhappy? I don't know. I mean, I can really understand how the housing crisis in particular gets people down. If you move to a place and just getting these basic things set up on, it doesn't seem possible. That just affects every aspect of your life and causes so much stress. I mean, I've also lived in Germany for seven years and I still get riled up at the lack of card payment options in Berlin. So I can see why that's an annoyance. And that was something that cropped up. That said, I think there's probably a bit of a difference between the people who are just moving here, who are tackling the full sort of brunt, bearing the full brunt of all this admin and maybe it's winter and the weather's bad and they're trying to find a place to live and they're trying to get stuff set up and trying to make friends versus the people who have been here a bit longer. When you've got everything kind of set up and you've got your circle and you've got your flat after a long journey, things do feel a lot brighter. And the other thing I'd say is that I think what people love about some of these places is far less tangible than, oh, I, you know, I, I can get good Wi-Fi on the trains. It might be just the energy of a place. It might be the culture. It might be the way the city looks. It might be how pretty it is in autumn. Any of these kind of things, I think, make you fall in love with a place more than, you know, the day-to-day stuff. That's my view anyway. That is great. Thank you so much for that, Imogen. To round things off for the day, let's have a chat about food culture shocks. So we did a survey for the local Germany and asked readers to share how their food habits had changed and what they were surprised by since moving to Germany. A lot of people said they were eating a lot of bread, <laughs> much more than in their in their home country. Abendbrot was mentioned a few times. One person said, I eat a lot more cheese, bread and sausage. Kind of mm-hmm. sums up. Yeah. German cuisine, maybe. <laughs> that's, that's it. Um, others said they were surprised by how much Germans' social lives revolve around beer. So we'll make sure to include that story in the show notes. But it's over to you, my friends. What is 
a food culture shock that you've experienced in Germany? Well, I think um, as a vegetarian, I am kind of insulated from some of the more gross side <laughs> of German food culture. There are some pretty big monstrosities out there. The worst one for me has to be met, which is basically cold minced meat with a bit of onion in there, I think. And so people get very creative with it. It's sticky and you can make sort of hedgehogs out of them. That's known as a met eagle and the spikes are made from onions. So a lot of flavors going on there. A couple things made with aspic jelly, but also let's not forget spargel. Asparagus, oh, big, the classic. exactly big white asparagus that is completely flavorless, covered in butter. What's wrong with green asparagus? It's got a lot more flavor. So yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Yeah, I do. Well, they actually the, the reason it's white is because it doesn't have any nutrients anymore. They basically blocked it from the sunlight. That green color you see, mm. those are vitamins. Like <laughs> 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 they're so frightened of anything green. I mean, with the amount of butter that you eat it with, I don't think they're looking for vitamins there. No, it's not a health. Food is, oh, that's where my diet's been going wrong. Are you a, a spargel for breakfast gal? Oh, I am. I am. Every well, meal. If you have, exactly, if you have Arben brought, you've got to have something other than brought for, yeah. you have to have frustuck spargel, yeah. obviously. And then some, some Met Eagle to wash it down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Imagine. Imogen, what's well, your culture shock? I think just to, you know, to carry on on the theme of the Met Eagle, I was, I suppose, shocked at how unappetizing German cuisine can really look and how it just does not seem to be something they consider about kind of this thing of eating with your eyes. And one really good example of this is the Hamburg dish of Labscouse. I love the story behind this because in, um, in Britain, in Liverpool, we have Scousers. So apparently this relates to sailors coming over and landing in, in Liverpool. And we now have our own version of, of Lab Scouse, um, which is called Scouse in the area. But cool. for us, it is just a nice stew. In Germany, however, it is as uh, James was talking about, this kind of cold, oniony mincemeat <laughs> uh, called Met, pretty much, with a fried egg on top and just random pickles. And I can tell you, even if you're just blisteringly hungover in Lübeck and trying to fit in with the culture, and even if you're starving hungry, this is not an appetizing dish by any stretch of the, the imagination. Mm. No, this sounds terrible. Really, <laughs> really not good. That's it for this week. Thank you so much to all our listeners. As always, we will add the links in the show notes, as I've been saying, for the stories we've been talking about. It would really mean a lot to us if you hit follow, left a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, especially if you enjoyed it. This week's panelists have been Imogen Goodman and James Jackson, and our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. I'm Rachel Loxton. I hope you enjoyed listening and we'll be back again next week. Until then, take care. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.